read with me from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to read verse 14. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Oops, sorry, I went too far. I wasn't supposed to read that. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit. Lord, reveal yourself to us today. Reveal your glory to us today in the face of Jesus Christ that we would be transformed into the very image of that glorious Son. We ask this, Father, that you would be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God was manifest in Jesus Christ, and Christ is the manifest fulfillment of all that God has promised us. Now there's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospel writers, The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. And those four gospels present to us one God and one Savior, but they don't present Him in the same way. And that is by design. God inspired it that way. Sometimes you hear critics or people that are ignorant about the Scripture questioning why the gospel accounts are different. Well, they're supposed to be different. The message they communicate is the same. The person they speak of is the same. But they're supposed to be different. They present different aspects of this God and this Savior. All four present to us Christ in His first advent or His first coming. But they present Him from different aspects though all display His glory. So Christmas is about glory. Glory is not just happening at Christmas, but glory, the glory of God, the glory of Christ is magnified at Christmas. You can tell that by looking at this sanctuary. Because after a certain point in January, we won't have those ornaments hanging on those banners. We won't have wreaths hanging there. And we won't have a tree back there in the corner with lights all over it. Not because God stopped being glorious, but because we're not celebrating the Christmas season any longer. Though we never stop celebrating the Savior. And in a sense... In that sense, we never should stop celebrating Christmas. The gospel according to Matthew presents to us Jesus, the King. The King in all of His humble glory, born in lowly estate, 
It begins by tracing his royal lineage up from Abraham through David to his birth. And Matthew's gospel account demonstrates that Jesus has fulfilled all to take up the title of King and Messiah. That Jesus is the rightful heir to sit on the throne of David. When God promised David that he would appoint an heir that would sit upon his throne forever, that heir was always to be Jesus Christ, the son of David. The gospel according to Mark presents to us Jesus, the servant. Now you'll see in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy. We come to Mark, and Mark's gospel begins with the baptism of Jesus, the work of Jesus, There is no lineage listed. There is no genealogy in true form of a servant or a slave. There is no genealogy taken into account. He's presented as one wholly owned by another who has lost all identity except that of his master. Jesus said, I did not come to do my will, but I came to do the will of my father. I do only those things I see my father do, and I say only those things I hear my father say. This is a man, this is a servant, wholly submitted to his master, to his father, to do his will. So this is, the, this is who Mark presents to us in his gospel. To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus insistently submits to being baptized by John. We see John baptizing and Jesus comes and John says, no, Jesus, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, John, to fulfill all righteousness, you must baptize me. Though it was John that felt compelled to be receiving baptism from Jesus. Mark presents to us Jesus, the suffering servant. We come to Luke's gospel, and Luke presents to us Jesus, the man. Where Matthew's gospel began with the genealogy tracing Jesus from Abraham to his birth to demonstrate his rightful claim to the throne of David, Luke's gospel, in the genealogy presented there, traces the genealogy of Jesus from the birth of Jesus all the way back to the garden to Adam, the first man, so that there is no doubt that this Jesus is fully man. As a man, he can fulfill in himself the judgment issued to Adam in the garden. And as we will see, he is fully man, yet fully God. He is the God-man. So Jesus, though he is the God-man, did not take a pass Jesus was 100% human, and in his humanity, he walked righteously before God. In his humanity, he took the penalty that was pronounced upon Adam. He took that as a son of Adam in himself, as only he could. Now we come to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, the gospel that we will concentrate on today. The gospel according to John presents to us Jesus, our God. So Matthew presents the king, Mark presents the servant, 
Luke presents the man. John presents our God. And in a sense, John gives us a genealogy of his own. A genealogy of sorts, not human, but divine. John begins his gospel by taking us back to the beginning before creation when there was only the Word or the Logos. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. That means before any material creation, before planets, before solar systems, before cosmic dust, before anything material existed, there was the Logos, there was the Word, there was God. And John here in his gospel gives us the origin, tells us, shows us where Christ ultimately came from. He really didn't come from anything because he is. He always has been. He always will be. He is eternal. And so in this gospel, John gives us this picture of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is not the written Word John is referring to, but the living Word who was and is the agent of God's creation. The living Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who is God. Look at what John writes when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in verse 3, he writes, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the one through whom all was created. He is the one for whom all is created. So the living word, who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who is God. John declares that the living word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is glory to behold. There is a term the Hebrew writers use to describe the visible manifestation of the presence of God. They called it the Shekinah glory. Now you'll not find in Scripture this word Shekinah. The word Shekinah that the Hebrew writers used was really a combination, a transliteration of two different words. It is the word translated tabernacle, in much of the Old Testament scriptures, it means to dwell among, to dwell with. That's where we get the name of that feast, that Jewish feast, the Feast of Tabernacle. It's celebrated God dwelling among his people. And the Shekinah glory spoke of the majestic presence and the manifestation of God in which he descended to dwell among men. It was Anywhere the visible manifestation of the presence of God was. That was called the Shekinah glory. It was his presence dwelling among men. It was 
the presence of God. It was the light between the cherubim at the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant. This was the Shekinah glory. And whenever the invisible God becomes visible and whenever the omnipresence of God is localized, this is the Shekinah glory of God. So when Solomon is dedicating the temple and the Bible talks about the presence of God coming and the smoke filling the temple and the people were bowed down to the floor. This was the the manifestation of the presence of God. This was the Shekinah glory of God. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush, that was the Shekinah glory of God. That was the manifestation of God, the manifestation of his presence in that bush. When God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and he was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that was the Shekinah glory of God. When Jesus Christ was carried into the temple, that was the Shekinah glory glory of God. When John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, this is what John is declaring, that Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. And John declares that in the human Jesus, he beheld the manifest presence, the Shekinah glory of God, who was and is the word, the logos, who existed before with God. The invisible God became visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the presence of God that dwelt among men. Jesus is the word that became flesh, the manifest presence of God, therefore the manifest presence of his glory. To behold Jesus is to behold the glory of God. This is what John writes in his second letter to the Corinthians when he says it is the same God who shone light from the darkness, speaking of the first creation, who has caused the light to shine in our heart, to give to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the face of God's glory. So there is glory to behold. There is glory all around The question is, can we see it? The glory of God is not hidden. Jesus was not hidden. He was born. He lived. He died open for all to see. He wasn't born in secret. He didn't live in secret. He did not die in secret. He lived a very public life. He died a very public death. He had a very public birth. It was so public that angels announced it to make sure that the shepherds that were out in the fields keeping their flocks knew that the Christ was born and instructed them to go to Bethlehem and find him. It was about as public as you could get. The account of Simeon and Anna recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. Beginning in Luke chapter 2 verse 25, it tells of an old man who went to the temple regularly. His name was Simeon. And God had given a promise to Simeon that before he would die, he would see with his own eyes the Christ, the Messiah. And when the baby Jesus was carried into the temple by Mary and Joseph for his presentation, for his dedication, because Jesus was the firstborn male, he was the firstborn 
male that opened Mary's womb, and by law, he was to be presented to God, dedicated to God in the temple. And in keeping the law, Mary and Joseph, after her days of purification, she had to wait 40 days to become clean before she came into the temple. After her days of purification were over, they bring Jesus to dedicate him to the Lord because every firstborn male had to be dedicated to the Lord. Not every baby, but every firstborn male. Every firstborn animal was sacrificed to the Lord. But every firstborn male was dedicated to the Lord and they had to pay to redeem that son so that they could keep him. But in essence, that son belonged to the Lord. And this is what Mary and Joseph were doing. They were carrying Jesus into the temple to dedicate him to God. And Simeon sees the baby Jesus in the arms of Mary and he recognizes he beholds glory. So think about this. Jesus was carried openly into the temple, but not all had eyes to see the glory of God. But Simeon and Anna did that day. What appeared to be a common baby was in reality their king and their Messiah. It was not in the quality of the swaddling cloths that Jesus was wrapped in. It wasn't because there was a royal entourage that clued them that this was a special baby because there was none. Here was a poor, common couple with what seemed to be a common child held in their arms, but it was their faith. It was their faith in God. It was their faith that God would keep his promise that even though they were both old, they had a promise from God and they believed that promise And they saw by faith, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the glorious Savior King wrapped up in human flesh in the cloths of a newborn baby. And when they saw by faith, when they saw Jesus, they didn't just see a baby, they saw a Savior. They saw a King. In fact, they saw the glory of God. And they responded accordingly. Outwardly, no different than any other baby that day in the temple, but inwardly, this was the king of glory. There is glory to behold all around us. The question is, do we have eyes to see that glory? Do you have eyes to see God's manifest glory? It is so easy for us to go through life blind to God's glory. There is an enemy who wants to do everything he can to diminish, to tarnish, to tear down, to take away the glory of God. The things that should be rightly glorified, the enemy is trying to wrongly glorify them. And we as a people should understand what should be rightly glorified and what should not be rightly glorified. We are a people that should be able to walk through life and see the glory of God. Not just on a Christmas tree that's decorated with lights and ornaments. That's easy. But can you walk by any tree and see the glory of God? Can you walk by any flower and see the glory of God? Can you walk by the most common object you can think of? Can you see 
the glory of God in the most common. Because that's what God did. God sent Jesus, the Son of God, the glorious King of glory. He wrapped Him in human flesh. He wrapped Him as the most common package, placed Him in the most common place, the most inglorious place possible, so that those who would have eyes to see His glory would see. But for those who do not have eyes to see, it would be very easy for them to miss. We are constantly, though not always consciously, glorifying things. Think about this. You got dressed today, you put on glory. If you have a tree at home, like a tree, the tree we have here, you decorated your Christmas tree, you glorified your Christmas tree. When a bride adorns herself, she is glorifying herself, and rightly so. When you decorate a cake, you're glorifying that cake. When you paint your house or decorate your living room, you are glorifying it. Glory is built into us because we bear the image of the glorious one. Because we were made for glory. Therefore, we desire glory. We very often seek it sinfully. Because we were made for glory, we desire glory, but we very often desire it sinfully. We need to hold glory right. We need to hold it in its right place. We need to understand what glory is and who glory truly belongs to. But that God has made us partakers of His glory. By His grace, He has done this. Glory belongs to the Lord, but in His grace, He brings us into His glory and allows us to experience it in many different ways. At Christmas in particular, we see glory on display. People string up miles of lights, decorate trees and houses, even whole neighborhoods, all in the name of Christmas. They may not know it fully. They may not know why they're doing what they do. They may not be able to give a correct theological reason for what they're doing, or any reason at all for that matter. But the fact remains that Christmas brings out the glory in people and in places that otherwise would remain inglorious. That in and of itself testifies to the glory of God. It testifies to the glorification that is taking place constantly all around us. And if you are in Christ, it testifies to the glorification that is taking place within you. Listen to what Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So we could say this, that glory is your destiny. 
If you are in Christ, there is no doubt that glory is your destiny. In fact, the Scripture presents it in such a way as to promise that it is already accomplished, even if we do not yet see it complete. You notice that Paul uses the past tense when he writes this in his letter to the Romans. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense. In Christ, you will not be one day glorified. You have already been glorified. Your future glory is guaranteed because you have already been declared glorious. You have been made a partaker of His glory by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is completed in Christ. You are glorified in Him. Christmas may bring out the glory more than any other time of year, but the glory that, was, that we have been given in Christ is not seasonal. So we see it at Christmas. We put up trees and lights and wreaths and decorations at Christmas, but glory is not seasonal. The reason we celebrate Christmas is not seasonal. It is eternal. That glory has been imparted to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is an eternal glory. Though we may be partakers, the glory is all His. We take no credit for glory. All the glory and all the honor and all the praise belong to Him. It's His. Glory belongs to Him. That tree is about His glory. These lights, these ornaments, these wreaths, they are about His glory. The trees turning red and yellow outside, they are about His glory. The trees that will bloom new in spring with fresh buds, they are about His glory. The birds that fly over in the morning and make that sound are about His glory. The birds that sit in the trees and sing in the evenings or sing in the morning, they are singing for His glory glory. Scientists are even discovering that planets are singing. I read an article just this past week that they've recorded the hum of the earth. Guess what? The Bible has long said that the, her the earth has been humming. Scientists are just now catching up with that fact, but we don't want to believe it because it's the Bible. But now we'll believe it because man says it's so. Listen, we better start believing things because God has said it is so. Don't wait for man to catch up with God. All of his creation is singing his glory. All of his creation is demonstrating his glory. Everything has been created for his glory. Even Satan will be for his glory in his demise and in his ultimate being kicked into the lake of fire with all who will follow him. It is all for his glory. Paul writes this in his letter to the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, 
To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You are the church. You exist for his glory. You exist personally, individually. You exist corporately for his glory. You may not feel glorious. You may judge glory on looks. You may judge glory on many things. But the Bible says that you are made, you are created in the image of God. You bear his glory. You bear the fingerprint of your maker. You are made for his glory. If you are in Christ, the Bible is clear that your destiny is to be glorified even as Christ is glorified, that you are being conformed to the very image of the Son of God. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he talks about beholding in a mirror, gazing into that mirror and being transformed into the very same image. And the implication is when we look in the mirror, we see Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because you are a vessel that contains his glory. And you are not to look at yourself as you were in your old creation. You are to look at yourself as you are now in Christ, a new creation with the old things having passed away. Behold, all things having been made new. Now all things are of God. That is how you are to see yourself. And you don't take credit for that because you get no glory for that. You get no credit for that because it's not what you have done. It is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You bear his image because he has saved you by grace through faith. You now are that vessel that contains his glorious presence. You are now to look at yourself differently than you've ever looked at yourself before. You're to see his glory, the glory of Christ in you. And as you see the glory of Christ in you, you are to give glory to him. You are to give thanks to him. You are to give honor to him. You are to give praise to him because the glory that is in you has come from him. It's his this is why we see the picture written for us in, in, in John's account in Revelation when it gives us the picture of the 24 elders who have received the crowns and they fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns before the throne. Because whatever crowns, whatever rewards, whatever glory we receive, we will know, if we do not know, we will know very clearly in that day that we have received it because of what he has done. That there is no credit, not even the smallest bit of credit that we can take ourselves. But it was his grace, all his grace that has given to us the glory with which you have been glorified. Christmas is about glory because Jesus is the glory of God 
manifest for us, made flesh and dwelt among us. And that glory, that glorious Christ now dwells in you, right here in you. You are a vessel created by God to contain his glory. That is good news. You're not that vessel because you earned it, because you deserve it. You are that vessel because God chose you to be that vessel. He poured his love in your heart. He poured his spirit into you. And now Christ dwells in you. The very face of glory, the very manifestation of glory dwells in you through faith in the Son of God. Christmas is about glory. So give your gifts, eat your feasts, celebrate and rejoice as hard as you can because we have reason. But as you celebrate and as you eat your feast and as you rejoice, do not forget where the glory comes from and who the glory belongs to and that everything we have been given has come from Him. It is for Him. It is indeed for His glory. Amen. Let's stand. It is Christmas time. It's time to celebrate His glory, to show His glory, to tell of His glory, to do so with a fullness of joy that can come only from Him. I pray you find and know His joy, that it would be your strength in difficult times, that the glory of Christ would be your light in any darkness you may encounter. I pray that you know that His glory, His joy, His light, and His life is not seasonable, is not seasonal, but like Christ. It is eternal. It is to be daily for the believer. The glory of Christ knows no season, but endures in and through all things. It not only endures, but the glory of Christ has overcome all, even our enemies, even death. So Christian, rejoice. The glory of Christ has overcome. Go and celebrate and make this a very merry Christmas.